Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Tobias Wright. Now, normally we're live right here on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, but now that it's summer, our team is traveling all over the world and making opera, making art, making trouble... Not to worry, you're going to get your OBS fix. This summer, most of our shows will be pre-recorded but still released at their usual time. That's Mondays at 9 p.m. Central here on WNUR and also as a podcast on iTunes. Over the next few months, you're going to get all your favorite segments plus some new ones, as well as guest interviews, a couple of solo shows from me like tonight, and of course our hot takes by our team on everything opera related and plus you can still have your voice heard leave us a voicemail on 224-2189-BOX that's 224-218-9269 you can tweet us at opera box score you can write to us via facebook or regular old gmail opera box score gmail.com all right so it's summer and that means reruns Now, for our new listeners, you might have missed two great interviews from the OBS archives. Tonight, you're going to get another chance to hear Oliver's interview with superstar tenor Matthew Polanzani and my interview with Kirsten Harms, the former intendante of the Deutsche Oper Berlin. Then, in our hometown team segment, Tobias and Oliver chime in on the appointment of Lydia Yankovskaya as the new music director of Chicago Opera Theater. And you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. All right, we've got a great show for you tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here. Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright will be joining me on paper. And what I mean by that is that uh, because we're pre-recording our shows over the summer, still trying to figure out the technology that will allow us all to be on the same audio feed, even if we're in different places. If you know me, you know that technology is not my real thing. Not so good at the technology. Great on sports, great on opera, not so much on the technology. So still figuring that out. They're going to be on paper tonight. They've uh, written in with their thoughts for our hometown team segment. we got a lot to get to before then. Not much happening in sports right now. We're in the dog days of summer. Um, nothing but baseball in this country. Overseas, uh, Wimbledon starting this weekend, I think. It usually finishes around Independence Day. So we got two weeks of Wimbledon. You know, once Andy Murray won Wimbledon, I kind of checked out, kind of tuned out. Oliver's a huge fan of Roger Federer. I think it's those lovely hairless legs that Oliver likes so much. All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So it's been just over a year since Oliver managed to snag probably one of the biggest interviews in OBS history. Matthew Polanzani, star tenor, superstar tenor, doing a master class right here at Northwestern University. Somehow, Oliver managed to corner him in a practice room or something. I guess it was Oliver's feminine charms. 
and got a chance to sit down and talk to him. He had some fascinating things to say about his own career, about the business. And this was, of course, way before he had hosted the Met in HD broadcast. I assume that he knew he was going to be doing the Rosen Cavalier role of the Italian tenor, which we saw in the Met in HD, what was it, last month, I guess? But he wouldn't have known that he would have been hosting as well. And I've just fallen in love with this guy, not just as a singer, but as a personality. Check out what he had to say to Oliver. And thank you so much mm. for this. How did you get to this place where you feel like you can actually start thinking about gesture and about, you know, language to that detail? And, you know, I don't know if you're even going back into the history of some of these shows. And I'm sure you're listening to the previous singers or you're reading books about the composers. I don't know, but it feels like you're coming at it from so many angles. And it's just mind-blowing. Well, here's detail. the thing. You know, <clears throat> yeah, I do, I do listen to old singers. I do listen to recordings from, from past performances, things like that. I'll read books, especially if it's something historical. Like I did a lot of study for Roberto Devereux because there was a lot of it's, what we did was fiction. But I mean, all these people were <coughs> it was based on real people. Mm -hmm. But I mean, um, you know what it was? I'll tell you. You know, in order to be able to come at it from a lot of different directions, you have to master one particular direction at the top. You have to figure out your technique. Yeah. You have to figure that out. Without knowing your technique, your body is totally unfree to do anything else. So. Learning technique, and that's that's a constant thing for me. But now I have a basis for it. And those four years of work that I did with Margaret Harshaw were huge. The work I continue to do with Laura Brooks Rice, they've all been huge. And I've been with Laura way longer than I was with Miss Harshaw. She's been my teacher since Miss Harshaw died. So um, we're talking like 17 years. Hmm. So wait, let me think. 97? No, 19 years. 19 years. So I mean, um, <clears throat> I mean she's been my teacher for a long time. And... Um, Having a solid technique, having something to, that I knew I could depend on and make work freed me up to be better at all the rest of it, you know, at, at, at languages and at gesture and all those things and being natural. And frankly, you know, the more time you spend on stage in many ways, the easier it gets. You know, I mean, like if you're given a lot of recitals, then you start getting used to it. And then you start being able to think while you're, while you're and that can get in your way, too. I mean, there were a couple times when things came in my head last night, and I was like, man, i got to banish that thought right now. You know, like, <laughs> you start thinking about other, like, in this particular cycle, because it's 20 songs, yeah. and you don't get a break, and you don't have time to check through the score once more and make sure you have it. Yeah. Either you've got it or you don't, you yeah. know. And, and I mean, I, 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 I dropped a verse in the 10th song, even as it was. You know, I mean, like, and even, that, but, you know, like I said, and what I was saying before, you just have to be graceful. In the moment that you're in, you know you're doing the best you can do. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the best you can do is going to be exactly what they want. And if it's not, you know, and understanding you're not going to please everybody all the time, you can't. And that's one of the beautiful things about our career, that we can argue about who we like. Have you always been a person who, like, talks with your hands? Or did you, like, look at yourself in a mirror and decide, oh, No, no, I, I talk with my hands, okay. for sure. Absolutely. Because the timing of what you do as a singer works so well with, with, with all things I've ever seen you sing. Like, it just seems like you were coached to like, okay, that's, your hand lands there right at that note, you know? Oh, no. We, like, what we do when we talk, it's like, hey, call me, you know, like, it's supernatural. And right. Like, but you see singers get all trapped up and they like, oh, sure. my hand is up and I don't know what to Well, do. but you know what? They're not, they're, these guys aren't, haven't learned how to live the text yet. Yeah. You know? They're getting there. And all of them have great voices. That's a that's the first thing to start off with. I mean, like you have to have that in order to you 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 have to have that to start or else it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you figure all the rest of it out. If you haven't got a good good working voice to start with, you know, but all those hand gestures and things like that, all that stuff comes from from having a deeper understanding of the text. You know, and then your body starts to move. You know, like I I've I've tried to get singers in in classes, you know, to like like if you're telling like to try and tell a story. And to be like in a bar with a group of friends and like exactly how would you move and when yeah. you, what would you do like to move in a total a way that's completely foreign to yeah. what we're doing on the stage. <clears throat> and you heard me say it already three or four times today just now with these kids. Way easier to bring you back from, from the edge of vulgarity than it is to push you into vulgarity itself, you know? So I mean like you have to risk being natural and free, you know, and yeah. uh, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And, takes a grasp, it really takes a good grasp of your technique, and that's these guys are still learning, working that stuff out. There's definitely a stylist in you, hmm. but then you do all these things that are so intellectual, <laughs> and I feel like it's, is he Fritz Wunderlich? I don't know, but like, where do you see yourself in this? And you are like Polenzani-ing things. Like, you know, like, <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great thing. <laughs> no, nope. but I was listening to like your Hoffman and your 
Roberto Devereaux. And I was like, how is the same singer singing these things? You know, and like, what are you are what are you doing in your preparation to say, okay, this is mine. How am I going to make this mine and make it work work with my technique, my voice? You know. Okay. Well, first of all, when you say like you don't know what kind of singer I am, the the reason you don't know is because my repertory is broad. Mm -hmm. It's always been broad, but I've never ventured into verismo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never ventured like I'm 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 singing bohème for the first time. I'm no, 47 really? years old. I'm going to do it and and like after I'm done here. I'm going home for a couple of weeks to work and then I'm going to sing. You know, I mean, like, I think it's going to, I frankly think it's going to be easy for me because I know a lot of it already and I'm, I'm, I know I make enough noise to do it and I think I'm smart enough. The thing that I, that I miss about something like Bohem or even in, in like Alfredo or whoever, I mean, the opportunities to sing quiet aren't, aren't so many, there are not so mm -hmm. many opportunities and like, I like to be able to make music like that. Yeah. So on the other hand, I, this music speaks to my soul and I've, I've, wa I've waited to do it, but I've been, wa I probably... I would have judged myself ready to do it even seven or eight years ago, but I've just waited because once you start on that road, you, it's hard to get off that road. My repertory is broad and I do a lot of different things and I do that and I think that's healthy for my voice. I think it's healthy for my mind. You know, like I know singers who have already sung like 200 performances of Don Giovanni and they're 10 years younger than me and I'm just like, man, what, how, when, how, don't you want anything else for your life? I mean, yeah, yeah well, that's paying the bills and I'm like, dude. There's way more to life than just paying the bills. And yes, bills had to get paid, but you can choose to do stuff that's fun and interesting and even things that are not so fun, but still interesting, you know? And um, so this is why, you know, this is how my, um, how my repertory has grown, you know, and why something like Devereaux is just as possible for me as, you know, Nadir or even Don Giovanni, like I have next year. I have Don Giovanni, Idomeneo. And um, he's an Italian singer. <laughs> like and the that. Italian singer in Rules and Cavalier. Yeah. They show that thing up in HD. It's like, what? What is he doing? Did they that? say that? Well, yeah. it's, it just I just saw Electra yesterday. And, oh, uh, yeah. right. And so they announced like the next season. And so your name comes up in Rosenkavalier. And it's like, really? He has time mm. to do that? Like, <laughs> They're all right in the same. I mean, literally. Okay. Idomeneo starts in like mid-February or something like that. And the last performance of it is, say, March 30th. I don't know the exact days. Mm -hmm. I'm making up these dates. But yeah. it's like that. Rehearsal for... Um, Rosen Cavalier starts like March 12th or March 18th or something. So there'll be like 12 days, but it's only the Italian tenor. I mean, he walks on, yeah, yeah, he yeah, sings, yeah. <laughs> he takes a little break, he sings it again a half step higher, and then he leaves. You know what I mean? Like, so I mean, it's that's not cruel, so bad. It's a cruel role. It's a, but it's a great part, though. I mean, like, it's, and it's a beautiful aria. People love it, even yeah. if they don't know who you are when you come out for yeah. your bow at the end. Yeah. Anyway, the last performances of Rosen Cavalier will still be going on while Don Giovanni is even in performance. Mm -hmm. Like at one point before before they'd worked the schedule out, they had said it's looking like now we're gonna have a Rosen Cavalier in the afternoon and a Don Giovanni at night. Mm -hmm. Will that be okay? You know, I'm like, <laughs> well, that will be okay. I, I wouldn't want to do it if it was the other way around, maybe. Yeah. But. And you were talking in this masterclass you just gave about like the difference between a French portamento and an Italian portamento, hmm. and there isn't a, there aren't a lot of singers right now who sing in a French style. It's like a very international. Right. So I just can you say a little bit about that, like where you got your idea about French repertoire, since you are a specialist, I find in this repertoire. Well, I mean, a lot of it came from when I was younger, but a lot of it comes from working with people like Pierre Vallet. Okay. Who was a he's a coach conductor he, he assistant conductor he was a coach at the Met now he's branching into conducting he's a lovely conductor actually and has a real great firm understanding of music and I, I go to him a lot especially for French things but also for other things I mean like the work I did with him has has been big but here and I talked about listening to French singers mm -hmm. there's something about listening and I and I and I go back to like Teal mm -hmm. you know and Benzo you know I mean like I listen to what they did and how they did it. I wasn't listening to how they sang. I was listening to how they said words. Mm. I listened to how they treat musical line as French people singing French. You know, and they just come at it differently than an Italian person would or than a German person or an English person or whatever, American. So, I mean, I, you know, like I don't, I didn't, I generally never studied anybody else's technique other than my own. But I took, I took great pains to start to understand why singers were doing things, the things they were doing. You know, and in those days... You know, they were making a lot of recordings, but generally, if you were going to make a recording, you were doing it because you were one of the greatest at what you were doing, yeah. you know, generally. And um, so I knew I could steal a lot of ideas from them just about how you treat language. And I got to say, you know what? I learned a lot from, uh, incredibly, especially when it comes to French, I learned a lot from a soprano named Ora, Nora Amsalem, okay. who I sang Romeo and Juliet with in like 98 or something like that. She was the first French singer that had sung something French with. 
And man, I, I listened really closely to how she said her words. Okay. You know, just like the understand the sound je, you know, and yeah. it's not je or je, but I mean yeah. like the quality of that je or the quality in German like of, you know, like uh, mich yeah. versus nacht. You know, I mean, like they're really they're they're spelled the same way, but they're two different sounds. And when you listen to a German person say it, you can you totally hear the difference. So I try to make all those things my own. You know, I want to leave our audience with one of your anecdotes. You had like two really great ones, and I maybe I'll let you choose. Like, all right, I'll try. I'll try to give them both to you really quickly. <laughs> the first, the first one, talking about singing on Wacker Drive and being in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know what I was what I was trying to say to them was, you know, like standing on standing on the audition stage, looking at the people who I was auditioning for, and behind them was a window looking onto Wacker Drive. And as I was singing. I'm watching these people walking by and I'm, I'm seeing lives happening. Like I, and I mentioned, like I saw a woman who was crying and I saw some people who were arguing and I saw people laughing and chatting. And, you know, like I, it just occurred to me, even while I was singing, that life was going on, mm-hmm. even despite this moment, which I built up in my brain is, oh, I got to get this audition. Mm-hmm. You know, like, man, I, if I got to get if I don't get a job, I don't know what I'm going to do. And we're all we've all been in that boat. We've all been there. We're like getting getting work is not just important for like paying bills, but because you need to fulfill this dire need inside of you to create art, you know, to sing or to act or to dance or whatever. So, um, you know, like it, it occurred to me in that moment that, hey, you know what? This is just a moment in my life. It's not the last moment in my life. There's going to be other moments that are going to be just as big or bigger. And this audition, I'm going to sing as well as I can. If I don't sing very well, they might hire me. If I sing great, they might tell me to quit. I don't know what the <clears throat> what the outcome of this of this audition is going to be, but what I can say is I'm going to do everything I can to succeed in this moment. And it's going to have to be good enough because I can't do any better. I've prepared myself and I'll take note of the things I do wrong and I'll try and be better for them the next time, you know? Yeah. I mean and like yeah. this is just a moment in life and it's no bigger or smaller than it than it would be if it was the Met stage. Or some little stage, you know, like I said, in Wyoming or wherever. I mean, like... Or some you, guy's house and we'll leave you alone. Yeah. Oh, no. But you know what I mean? Yeah. It's really one of these things where you... you know, I always want to sing my best. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to go out and I'm not going to say to myself, well, this is going to suck. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. I'm going to do this and they're going to tell me to quit. Nobody mm-hmm. goes out with that attitude. Mm-hmm. Everybody goes out wanting to do something great. Mm-hmm. And so I always try to think of myself as like, all right, I have to picture myself succeeding and going out and just enjoying the moment and knowing that I've got a gift and i got to use it. So the other one we were talking about was Philip Langridge. The thing of the thing about Philip was, you know, like he was talking specifically about like I hear from your co- like I hear from colleagues and people who've had firsthand experiences with you working with you and how, you know, like you're just such a gracious guy or whatever. And you know, I got a great example from Philip when 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 I was when I was younger and it was when my wife had left to go to Sarasota. We weren't going to see each other for 5 weeks or 6 weeks or however long it was going to be. And I was kind of depressed, you know, and I walked into rehearsal and Philip was a guy who I I'd barely met. I'd, I'd maybe I'd met him like the day before, and like, hi, I'm Matthew Ponzani. I'm the I'm the youth. You know, like, nice to meet you. Blah blah blah. And we knew each Moses other. And like, Aaron, that's right, Moses <laughs> and Aaron. And he was an unbelievable Aaron. And um, so anyway, he uh, so I saw him the next day, and uh, and he and he saw me, and he came over immediately. He said, Matthew, what's wrong? You know, and I said, oh, nothing. You know, and he said, no, I can see. You know, and I said, well, my wife left today. I'm not going to see her for five weeks. And he just took me into his arms and he gave me this huge hug and he said I know how that is don't worry this time is going to go by and before you know it you're going to be together again and he treated me in such a loving and I knew he'd been married to a mezzo named Ann Murray for all those years and um and like I knew that he understood you know and 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 just his willingness to be open and loving and earnest and real with me even though he was Philip Langridge's guy who had admired his artistry for all those years and I under, I'd seen him sing Veer, I'd seen him sing Mima, I'd seen him sing um, another big one. You know, I mean, like I'd seen him do things and I knew he was great at what he did, you know. And for him to just, you know, take a second out of his day to, to, to give me a hug and tell me everything was going to be okay. Oh, man, that, that spoke, a, that, that was a massive thing to me. And after he passed, I mean, um, mm. well, I remember, I remember very well um, singing, I was singing a recital in Wigmore Hall not long after and I was doing a piece that I associated completely with him which was Britain's Michelangelo sonnets and I had a very strong visceral memory even of him doing it and uh, I just remember talking to I needed to say something to the audience before I sang it you know just uh, to, to mention it because he'd made such a huge impact on me as a man and as a colleague and as an artist and um, I was grateful for his presence in my life.
Um, well, that's a great note to end on. Matthew Ponzani, it's ridiculous that you did this. Thank you so much. I'm glad I could You're do it, Oliver. It's close. great to see you again. <laughs>From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. And this is how I live United. I volunteer with United Way, helping the homeless in my community by teaching computer skills and helping them build a basic resume to save on their very own USB drive. It's huge when somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Every 20 seconds, another kid drops out of school. If we do nothing, 3.5 million kids won't receive a diploma over the next four years. United Way knows that kids who have a caring adult in their life are more likely to make it. And the difference between a dropout and a graduate could be you. Take the pledge to volunteer now at unitedway.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Rainbow House is a Chicago-based organization providing domestic violence intervention and prevention services to Chicago-area residents. Its five programs include a 24-hour crisis line, residential services, children's program, community resource services, and domestic violence prevention and education program. Rainbow House has sites in the Lawndale, Little Village, and Morgan Park areas of Chicago. For more information, go to www.rainbowhouse.org. That's rainbow-house.org. This message brought to you by WNUR. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Topper box score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Doing some reruns. That was Matthew Polanzani being interviewed by our creative consultant, Oliver Camacho. That was in May of last year. Now, March 2016, so a couple months before the Polanzani interview, I was in Germany. I did a three-show solo show period when I was traveling around Germany. And one of the people I got to interview was Kirsten Harms, who is the former intendantin or artistic director at the Deutsche Oper Berlin. When I lived in Germany in 2011 and 2012, I was a staff assistant director at the Staatstheater in Darmstadt. But for one of my shows, I actually went to Wiesbaden, where Kirsten Harms was directing. And I literally just sat in the back of the room for two weeks, but kind of got to know her and would talk to her on the break. She was very approachable on break time. Normally, as directors, the breaks are sacrosanct. You're trying to gather your thoughts. You really don't want to be disturbed. Uh, And I'll never forget um, one rehearsal where she looked at me in, in German. She says, look, you've been sitting here why don't you get up and, and stand in for one of the singers that can't be here? You do all the staging. And she totally put me on the spot. But I kept in touch with her. And when I went back to Germany last March, I got a chance to go to her house in Berlin and have a great conversation about her career as a female director and about her time at the Deutsche Oper Berlin and about some very difficult decisions that she had to make. Here's what we talked about. Kirsten Harms, great to see you. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Berlin. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's, it's kind of a gray day outside, actually. Uh, but you have a fantastic uh, blick, shall I say, of this um, river. I don't know what river this is. Yeah, that is the Havel. When the sun is shining, you have all the sealing boats. Uh-huh, right, yeah. right, exactly. The podcast that we're doing is all about Berlin, And it's all about directors. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. Can you start by comparing the three big opera houses in Berlin for our audience? There has always been a very interesting, artistic, um, competitive struggle, especially between the two big houses. 
Um, and that means the, the old court opera house, which is the Staatsoper unter den Linden, which is Daniel Barenbaum's house, and um, which you can compare, for instance, with Opera Garnier à Paris. And, and the newer opera house, uh, the Deutsche Oper Berlin, which was built in 1911, and it was built from, um, from the money of the new uh, bourgeoisie public. In the, after the Second World War, um, when Germany was separated, the, these two big houses um, were the first houses of West Germany, which was the Deutsche Oper Berlin, and um, the, uh, the other house was from East Germany, and which was the Staatsoper unter den Linden. And these, these two houses were the prestige objects. So they had a lot of money, and they could engage everybody they wanted, especially in the area of Götz Friedrich, which everybody mm. knows, I think, mm. still knows. Um, but after the German reunification, uh, there came a new question. Uh, do we need three opera houses in Berlin? Yeah. Because they don't, didn't want to waste so much money anymore and the, they thought other things than arts are more important. And um, when I came, so Götz Friedrich already had a lot of problems um, because they decided to close the Deutsche Oper Berlin. And when I came, I said, yes, it is necessary to have these three houses because they play different roles. The German, the Deutsche Oper Berlin, um, is the biggest house and was built to be able to play the big operas from Richard Wagner's, which was very much en vogue um, during the change of the century, for instance. The old court opera was too little for that. They had acoustic problems and space problems because this opera house was built for Baroque operas and classical operas. Well, so we played at the German, at the Deutsche Oper Berlin, uh, the big repertoire. And especially also now, um, the Staatsoper is in another house because they are rebuilding the um, Staatsoper Unter den Linden, the building. When I was in Germany in 2012, they were still rebuilding the Staatsoper, and, and it's still happening even yes, now. Yes, it does. And it will if, last. It, yeah, it'll take a while. And, and of course, the third opera house you refer to is the uh, Komische Oper. And um, how does that fit into this, uh, this landscape? What... Yeah, it's the smallest house. And it was uh, built like opera comique. So uh, they do another repertoire, especially they do operette, mm -hmm. they do musical, they do shows, and they do um, very crazy things. Mm -hmm. Entertainment, and um, of course they also do experimental things. So they play another role, I would say. You were the intendantin, or the general manager, we would say, in America for the Deutsche Oper Berlin. Uh, and in 2006, you had to make a very difficult decision. Uh, the decision was whether or not these performances of Mozart's Idomeneo uh, should go on, or, if, or should they be cancelled. And you decided to cancel them. If you had to make that decision again today, would you make the same choice? Well, yeah, after 10 years now, um, I think I know nobody anymore who says um, that this was not the right decision. Uh, because um, when the Minister of, of the Interior and also um, the State Crime Office call you in your vacancies to meet immediately, because they expect, if we play this special show in a special version, um, they expect terroristic attacks. Um, I was not willing to ignore that and to say it doesn't interest me. Um, arts are free, but of course it interested me, because if something would have happened, I would have been responsible for that. 
and the, and the decision was wise because it um, made possible a de-escalation of the situation. And the other problem was when I gave the big press conference with hundreds of journalists from all over the world, not one politician, not one head of administration, nobody came. So there was one woman like me with blonde hair <laughs> and a cream color dress between these hundreds of black journalists said that I'm a weak woman who fears terrorism and who is not able to do any decision. And um, so they, they, they made of me a lonely, weak woman. I mean, on the other hand, I said, think what you want. Write what you want, because I'm extremely clear that this is the only decision I will do. Hmm. And I knew they couldn't fire me. And so <laughs> <laughs> I feel very strong and said, okay, we go through that. You and I met for the first time uh, a few years ago in Wiesbaden, and you were directing Wagner's Lohengrin at the time in a fantastic production. I'll never forget... The chorus, the men and the women, were all dressed like men. Yes. And they all had um, trousers and, and beards. So I was observing those rehearsals. And you were so in command and so in control of that rehearsal room. No, everyone did what they were told. Nobody complained. H how did you and how do you get that, that feeling in the rehearsal room. Yeah, I do get it always also leading an opera house, which I did 16 years. And of course, there is a lot of experience of, of directing, which means leading complicated people who have uh, uh, complicated things to do, difficult mm -hmm. things to do. I think there is not one answer. Mm -hmm. When I was a little girl, I was already directing in a way. And what I did is I inspired other children. And I was full of ideas and imaginative. And um, I thought the best way to, to get the interest is to create enthusiasm. Also, then you have to communicate what are your ideas and how to translate them into action. How, how to put them on scene because then they believe you. And of course, it's necessary to dominate everything. I think I lead with 90% language of the body. Hmm. Not so much talking. I never have to say, please be quiet. Um, I do it with my body and they are quiet. <laughs> yes, I, I think I have a, a precise look for everybody. Especially, I, I see everything when they do good things, when they in, invent a new way of playing. I, have a, I, I, I see that and I give a feedback. And of course, that creates a creative atmosphere. Of course, I always ask myself what works and what does not work. So if something does not work, I'm not thinking the other people are the problem. I always think... What can you do to get them? I mean, you can do an, an experiment if you want, uh, maybe for one week. Communicate only what you want, what you like, what interests you, what you, where you agree, what you decide, and what uh, you think is the way to do something. So that means cut all the text is which say something you do not want or you criticize or you do not like. Just make a jump and go to the other positive way to communicate. That helps already so much. And it's no problem to say, well, I changed the idea. For instance, the acoustic is not what I expected or it is not what I wanted to tell. You know, they follow you immediately. Um, it's no problem. And also it's very important to, to respect the people who criticize you. Because in every group you have people who do not agree. Or who, are, who fear something or who doubt. 
and some of them are able to communicate it early. So uh, they make a joke or they um, show you in a way that they don't agree. And I uh, appreciate that because I know these are the people where I get the earliest information that there might be a problem or that there might be something which, which doesn't work. And it's necessary to understand what they want or what they feel. It's not necessary that then you do what they want. Because if you say, um, I understand your ideas, I understand your position, but now with my decision, I know that I will frustrate you because I decide in another way. They accept it. Uh, what, what has been your experience of the American opera system and what is your opinion of it in, in very general terms? I think the best opera house of the world is the Metropolitan. Every big star wants to sing there, every first conductor conducts there. And so um, um, I think that the American system is very successful. Of course, the difference is the sponsoring system to Germany, for instance. I think the, the advantage of the sponsoring system is that you get um, people involved with arts and the opera houses in that case. Maybe there can uh, uh, come up problems if people who give money expect that artists meet their expect expectations. Because if you give, give money, you expect successes. Um, you want, you prefer the, the, the successful receipts, for instance. And um, of course, avant-garde sometimes is the contrary. In Germany, we deal with politicians, but they don't do any comments about what arts they expect, because they know it's forbidden. The sponsors in America pay less taxes. Um, so also the community, um, so that means everybody pays in an indirect way the arts. It goes only through the portemonnaie of the sponsor. In uh, Germany also everybody pays the arts. In Germany the directors of theatres uh, need less time to get the money because they get the money from the state. In America I know that you have to work a lot to get enough money. On the other hand it's very difficult to say one system is better than the other. You cannot, because they are different and they are both very successful. One of the hallmarks, I think, of the German system is that all of the middle-sized houses, so these are not the big houses, but the middle-sized ones are still able to program different pieces, unusual pieces. They have productions that are you know, quasi avant-garde or at least unique and non-traditional. But in America, our middle-sized houses are not able to do that because the general managers don't think the audiences will like that. That seems to me to be a problem. How are the German houses, these middle German houses, how are they able to do such unique pieces of, of opera and have their audiences be happy. Yeah, I'm very experienced in that because you know that I did a lot of unknown pieces. If a production is good, people talk about it and that fills the house. I think that is the only really receipt. Make good arts, try to make the best, and then you will convince the people, whether they know the title or not. Of course, they are very well-known titles like The Magic Flute, but there are a lot of opera fans who want to have something new that they do mm. not know. Mm. And when we, do play, uh, when we play such pieces, um, they come from all over the world. Something that we're following very closely in America now is the number of asylum seekers and the number of refugees coming into Europe, coming into Germany. How is that affecting opera in Germany? And what is opera's responsibility to 
address this challenge? I mean, in, in Germany, we um, do already a lot for young people so that they get into the experience how to dance, how to be on stage, how to sing in a chorus. And um, it's, it's a way to show them a new world. And some opera houses, I think they um, also try to get uh, these people from other cultures to have a look or to be part of. On the other hand, of course, the arts do not do really react on the daily politics. Um, it's more the um, task to, com to, to tell storage, uh, stories about the fate of individuals, about um, human destinies and uh, to tell something fundamental about human beings and there are a lot of pieces who deal with that. Kirsten Harms, thank you so much for being on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. United Way, helping the homeless in my community by teaching computer skills and helping them build a basic resume to save on their very own USB drive. It's huge when somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Every 20 seconds, another kid drops out of school. If we do nothing, 3.5 million kids won't receive a diploma over the next four years. United Way knows that kids who have a caring adult in their life are more likely to make it. And the difference between a dropout and a graduate could be you. Take the pledge to volunteer now at unitedway.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Rainbow House is a Chicago-based organization providing domestic violence intervention and prevention services to Chicago-area residents. Its five programs include a 24-hour crisis line, residential services, children's program, community resource services, and domestic violence prevention and education program. Rainbow House has sites in the Lawndale, Little Village, and Morgan Park areas of Chicago. For more information, go to www.rainbowhouse.org. That's rainbow-house.org. This message brought to you by WNUR. How about we root for the home team? Baseball season's underway. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Thanks for hanging out with us on a Monday night. George Cedarquist here, kind of doing a solo show. Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright going to be adding their comments via email to me. We're still working out the technology of recording or pre-recording, I should say, our shows this summer, even though we can release them at the usual time right here on WNUR. Right after we taped last week's show... Chicago Opera Theater released the big news that they had hired a new music director. Douglas Clayton, who is the new general manager of the company, replacing Andreas Medisek, had been in some interviews, and then the news came out that the new music director is Lydia Yankovskaya. Now, what you need to know about her uh, super fast is that uh, she's from the former Soviet Union, born in St. Petersburg, and she had settled on the East Coast, serving as artistic director of the Juventus New Music Ensemble, also the music director of Commonwealth Lyric Theater, and a chorus master for the Boston Symphony, Tanglewood, Boston Youth Symphony. She was part of the inaugural residency program for the Dallas Opera's Heart Institute for Women Conductors. She's conducted at American Lyric Theater Beth Morrison Projects, which are developers of new contemporary opera in the U.S. And now she comes to Chicago 
she will not be conducting the upcoming 2017-2018 season. That's obviously been in place, of course, but for future seasons, she will be putting the programming together. So uh, here's what Toby had to say. He wrote to me and he says, I think this is an excellent choice for a number of reasons. First, you have to look at who Lydia Yankovskaya already has proven to be. She's a champion of new music who has begun putting her fingerprints all over the new music scene in Boston and the rest of the Northeast, in addition to what she's accomplished in her own community. And it's important to note that her appearances at places like Wolf Trap, Dallas, have given her insight into the current state of the opera world and what the business demands and expects from conductors and singers. In other words, Toby says, she isn't totally raw. However, this is why Toby likes this hire. Let's take a moment to compare this to sports, since after all, we are a show that loves to do that. So Toby says, baseball puts its best prospects in the minors to learn the craft and refine their skills based on their perceived potential. And it's clear that the potential and talent are there for Yankovskaya to be a great conductor and a music director at COT. This much has already been identified from her training, from her accomplishments. But what Toby says is most exciting is the potential for her own growth in a position of leadership with a very unique company in the United States. COT is a daring company. It takes calculated risks with new works, new composers, and it's hoping that its investment in Yankovskaya can be their next step forward. So like top prospects, in baseball, some point you got to be called up to the big leagues, and Toby believes that this affords her the unique opportunity to find her creative voice and help use it to lead COT forward in even more exciting ways with a musical vision and understanding that others will be thrilled to follow. Now, Toby adds another reason that he likes her is because she's a woman. He says, I don't necessarily have the facts to back this up, but I believe it to be pretty damn true. There are not enough women in positions of leadership in opera. There are not enough people of color in positions of leadership in opera. There are not enough people of different ethnicities in positions of leadership in opera. Having the chance to fill this position with a conductor from a minority group was a great opportunity for COT, and Toby says he's excited that they took advantage of it. I, I definitely agree with Toby on all these points. Again, I don't know the stats as well. I think we can all agree there are not enough women or people of color or people of different ethnicities in positions of leadership in opera. Yankovskaya, Jewish, from the former Soviet Union, clearly has experience at all levels of the game, young enough to have the energy to be a long-term hire at COT, and really shape the vision of this company in the coming years. Now, co-host Oliver Camacho adds that being a refugee who fled from Russia, coupled with her presentation of Syria's first opera singer, Lubana Al-Kantar, in last year's Refugee Orchestra Project, which is an organization which Yankovskaya founded, puts her in exact opposition of the fine arts threatening climate of anti-intellectualism, misogyny, and xenophobia. Plus, Oliver found, he writes, that Yankovskaya is interested in interdisciplinary collaborators in the circus arts, puppetry, robotics, and the visual arts. Now, Oliver does hedge his bets a little bit, and he writes to me, he's taken a wait-and-see attitude since we won't really see her own vision for the company until the 2018 season, but he hopes that she has some good ideas for what to do with the flailing young artist program at COT. And I think Oliver's got a point. Absolutely. We want somebody at this company to help it take another step forward. We want somebody who is collaborating in an interdisciplinary way. The Refugee Orchestra Project, which takes refugees that have landed in America and brings them together to make music, is a totally brilliant idea. There's an article on it um, on the Newsweek website of all places. Um, check out the link on our website, operaboxcore.com, for that article. We do need to wait and see, you know, what the program is going to be like for her. Who are these collaborators going to be? Where are they going to come from? And, it, you know, it takes time. There's always a little bit of, I'm not going to call it lame duck, 
months, but there is always a period of time where you're waiting for the current season to finish. Obviously, Andreas Medesek, his final season is that he planned was this coming season, even though he's gone. Hello to the weirdness that is opera. Very excited about this hire and watch this space. This just in the two minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from opera land in the past week delivered in two minutes tops. Jonas Kaufman has debuted in the title role of Verdi's Otello. In the New York Times, Zachary Wolf wrote, In front of a sold-out Royal Opera House here, Mr. Kaufman made his debut in the part, and he calmly, confidently sang it for the ages. His sound inescapably evokes memories of live performances and classic recordings by Vinay, Vickers, and other masters. In a single night, he joined their company. The Dallas Opera has announced the six participants of the third annual residency of the Linda and Mitch Hart Institute for Women Conductors this November. Those participants are Alba Bomfim, Melis Brunet, Lina Gonzalez-Granados, Karen Hendrickson, Carolyn Watson, and Monica Valinska, three of those from the USA. Off-Broadway's The New Group has announced four titles to comprise its 2017-2018 season. Among them is the off-Broadway premiere of Jerry Springer, the opera, directed by John Rando. The show, written by Richard Thomas and Stuart Lee, heightens the drama of the Jerry Springer show to operatic proportions with an absurd cast of characters and a series of arias. We'll give you a little clip in a minute. In a recent four-year research project called Cobalt, the comprehensive opera-based arts learning and teaching program, it has found increased student achievement due to participation in opera-based learning. Rolando Villazon, the Mexican tenor, is now singing less and less, but he's been named artistic director of the Salzburg Mozart Week. He starts work on the coming up July 1st, and he, quote, combines his international activities as the Mozartium's Mozart ambassador with the planning and realization of the Mozart Week in an ideal fashion. That quote from the Mozartium. Vim Wenders, the celebrated film director, was cheered to the rafters earlier this week at the Staatsoper in Berlin when he took his bow as director of a new production of Bizet's The Pearl Fishers. Wenders has been pursued for years by Bayreuth to stage an opera, even on one occasion pulling out at the last moment. And how fitting, on this day, the premiere in 1870 of Die Valkyrie by Richard Wagner in Munich. That's your two-minute drill. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Pretty good two-minute drill for late June. Sometimes things really quiet down. You know, September, October, November, as season's really getting going, there's a lot going on. But uh, I'm impressed with all that. Oh, where to begin? Uh, you you got to check out this clip for, for Jerry Springer, the opera. This show is over 10 years old now, but I saw it in London at the National Theater in the original run, and I was absolutely blown away. It has been done in Chicago. I'm amazed that it hasn't been done off-Broadway up to this point, but it is exactly what it sounds like. Richard Thomas, Stuart Lee, the creators setting a Jerry Springer show to music.
Thank you, baby Jane. Just so incredibly funny and so nuts. Hey, let's turn over to Jonas Kaufman singing at the Royal Opera House. Here's Toby's take. He wrote to me, he says, hey, look, there's never going to be a perfect review. And that's because of who Jonas Kaufman is. The expectations are unreal because he has established himself already as a great, if not unique, voice of this generation. That being said, and as a tenor myself, this is Tobias, I'm just glad that he's healthy enough now to continue singing. It never makes a fellow singer cheer when they hear of another singer having to cancel performances because of health-related issues in singing. So yes, he sings. And Toby writes, I think this just makes me excited for the future engagements he has planned, and I hope that he still sings next year in New York in April. Oliver adds, you can almost hear his favorite New York Times critic, Zachary Wolf, pee himself in delight at Kaufman's Otello. Now, Oliver, he tells me, trusts Wolf being a fellow gay. Oliver's words, not mine. Even if Wolf is exaggerating, this New York Times review is one of the most enthusiastic reviews Wolf has ever given a singing performance, which has got to count for something. Oliver's worried that choosing to sing Otello now may be a signal that Kaufman wants to go out in a blaze of glory, and we should all buy tickets to witness it. That's absolutely true. You know, on this show, we have been on Kaufman's butt for months, criticizing that guy from dropping out of this, dropping out of that. Is he going to pull out of a Lohengrin in Paris? Is he going to pull out of the Wiener Staatsoper? And he finally stood up and he, and he did it. Both my colleagues are right. You never want to hear of these great singers going down in flames, vocal problems. So you've got to have a certain amount of pride in what he's done and a certain amount of hesitation that this could be the beginning of the end for him. Takes me over to Rolando Villazon. I was observing at the Met in the rehearsal when Villazon's voice popped and really kind of ended his singing career. It was a production of Lucia de la Marmore when he was singing Edgardo. Now he's over at the uh, Mozartium in Salzburg. Hey, man, really helps to be someone well-known to get a job like that. Uh, those jobs are not easy to come by, and, uh, you know, it's Salzburg. It's a big festival. They want somebody of note. They want somebody well-known. I don't know how much experience the guy has in actual programming. Great performer, but programming, we'll see. His, the effects won't take place for a couple years from his choices, so we'll have to kind of watch this space with Viazon in Salzburg. Also, Wim Wenders directing at the Staatsoper in Berlin. Now, if you've listened to the show, you know that I know virtually nothing about film. Wim Wenders directed Wings of Desire, Buena Vista Social Club, and then Daniel Berenborn, the music director of the Staatsoper, calls him up, asks him to do this show. And he's 71, by the way. Now, that gives me hope as a director. I am nowhere near 71, thank God. And man, if I can be doing my debut in Berlin at the Staatsoper at 71, I will have had a good life. It's true that that company really does like its, its glamour and its Hollywood. Other directors there, of course... Well, not at the Staatsoper, but other famous directors, film directors, you know, people like Terry Gilliam, Werner Herzog, Anthony Minghella have had success as film directors and as, and as opera directors now. So, hey, kudos to him for that debut. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Hey, that's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, hey, just search for Opera Box Score. And have you liked our Facebook page yet? You can do that. You can share and comment on our posts or on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. Just subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Help promote our show by leaving a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For my co-host Tobias Wright, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera 
and a big scoop of mint chocolate chip ice cream. We're off next week for Independence Day, but be sure to join us on Monday, July 10th for more opera headlines, interviews, and insider opinions. Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment.